Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and we're recording this show on a Tuesday. Why is that the way I'm starting this show? Well, because one, I can't rhyme as well as Ryan Bailey can, and two, because it's Champions League this week. So to kick off this Americans in Action episode, I'm going to ask my two co-hosts to look into the future and tell me which American will have the best Champions League match day this week. We do have some Champions League uh, games happening right now as we record, but I'm assuming no one is looking at anything. No one is looking ahead. We're all just prognosticating to the best of our ability. Up first, in order of baking ability, it's Joe Lowry. Joe, I'm assuming you've got those baking skills. Would you agree that you're probably a better baker than Graham? I would, I would like to think so, Taylor. I just made scones over the weekend, and they there turned we out really well. I'm not going to lie. So I am, I'm honored to be in this spot. Graham can give his rebuttal if he thinks he's a better baker <laughs> than, than I am. He is, he is British, so maybe there's something to that. I don't know. No. Either way. Yeah, okay, Graham says no. Graham says no. Um, so I'm giving my, my player that I think is going to do best in the Champions League this week. Is that right? Yes. Weston McKinney, because he's playing Maccabi Haifa. And that, to me, feels like a recipe for some level of success. I know Maccabi Haifa gave PSG a little bit of trouble last, uh, last time we went through these Champions League match days, but they did crumble, and Weston McKinney is very good at being high in the air to head balls towards the goal, and I think that could be a useful tactic for Juventus, even though they're not firing in all cylinders right now. All right, that would make me very happy if it were Weston McKinney, who did have a decent game this past weekend. Up next, a man whose baking ability was just slammed without provocation by Joe Lowry. It's Graham Rutherford. Graham, are you doing okay? How are you doing? Hi, Taylor. I mean, I can bake a mean Pop-Tart. That is, uh, <laughs> that is a skill right there. Mm. I'm assuming you're, you're referring to the putting into a toaster version. You don't make your own like homemade Pop-Tarts, do you? That seems to be a thing here in the States these days, is the like... Uh, the locally made Pop-Tarts. Artisanal Pop-Tarts. Yeah, Wait, exactly. Artisanal Pop-Tarts in America. Yeah. That's the thing. Wow. That, uh, yeah. Your country needs to get a grip. There's nothing bizarre happening in my country at all. It's, it's all in your country at the moment. <laughs> yes, because because of the Pop-Tarts and nothing else at all. Uh, Graham, uh, what about you? What American do you think could have a particularly good Champions League week? Yeah, it's Weston, isn't it, against right. uh, Maccabi Haifa? Double. Um, and, and the good news is, if that Juve and Weston have a bad night, then Josh Cohen probably has yeah, a good night. Yeah, good call. So America can't lose. They can't <laughs> lose in this situation. Oh, America can't lose with you two talking about the U.S., I have to say. Uh, before we get to some of the questions we've got, we're going to talk U.S. women's national team. We're going to talk U.S. men, MLS, roster rules, uh, American fandom, lots of other things. Um we recorded this on Tuesday. As I said, we wanted to hold off uh, publishing it because we wanted to leave space uh, for an episode about the Yates report, which was released yesterday and was uh, distressing, horrific, shameful, many other uh, horrific adjectives. Uh, if you want to hear more coverage about the Yates report, uh, please listen to yesterday's show in the feed. Uh, and that is uh, a very great episode of Full Time with Meg Linehan and Steph Yang uh, talking about the Yates report, their reactions to it, and their reporting as well. Uh, so check that one out. We greatly appreciate them uh, letting us republish that show in our feed uh, because they can ha- not even handle it, just discuss it, handle it, make sense of it uh, to the best of their ability, certainly better than than we could. So uh, appreciation 
congrats to them uh, and much uh, love and support to them as well. Now, let's get to today's episode. Joe, we have a question from Shreyas Romani. Uh, the U.S. women's national team has some exciting friendlies coming up the next two months. What are you hoping to see from them against England and Germany in particular? One little bit uh, for me here. I would say these are friendlies, and we talk about, like, with the U.S. men, how friendlies aren't that important. You know, we shouldn't uh, make too much of them. For the U.S. women, that is sometimes the case when you're playing a team that they're going to beat 9-0. Uh, but with Germany and England, those are the types of opponents, opponents we don't always get to play against, certainly not uh, on the road. And so I think to get this opportunity against two strong opponents, we do want to see some, uh, some like, useful things that we can take away, some useful things that we can learn about these games. Yeah. So, Joe, that is me saying setting the stakes for you to then uh, tell us what you would like to see. Yeah, and I will do that in just a second. First, I want to run through the schedule here for the U.S. women's national team. They have England Please. on Friday of this week, so that's October 7th. Then they play Spain, and I, I wonder if Shreyas doesn't mention Spain in this question because of all the chaos that's been going around with the Spanish Federation and players and, and everything that's happened there. So I don't have a great read on what that game is going to look like, but they are playing Spain in Spain on Tuesday, October 11th. And then the two Germany games are in November, and they're both at home for the U.S. They're both on U.S. soil. So that's November 10th and November 13th. So just about a month month and change from now. So four good games for the U.S. women's national team. Four very strong opponents. Again, question mark. I get three very strong opponents and a little bit of a question mark around Spain. But there's real quality. These are the types of games, Taylor, that when we were talking about the W Championship and looking ahead to the World Cup and Blacko saying we're not ready, these are the types of games that you learn how ready you are. These are the types of games that we were calling out for the U.S. women's national team to try to get on their schedule. They need to be tested, and really ever since the Olympics, they, they haven't been tested. So this is a, a great step for them in that way. As far as things I want to see, because these teams have quality and because the U.S. cannot just play them off the field without really applying themselves, I think a good initial reaction at the start of the game is, is going to be key. That's something that we just haven't seen the U.S. have to do or have to deal with. These teams are, are quality, and the U.S. needs to be up for it. That's sort of like an energy... Uh, that's not really a tangible thing we can measure, but I do think that's an important step for this U.S. team. Now for a couple of things we, we can do a little bit better at measuring. One is sharper possession play, not too reliant on crosses. I want to see this team evolve, right? I want to see them address things that, again, Taylor, you and I talked about during the W Championship and back during the Olympics with Jordan Angeli. This team oftentimes relies on just lumping the ball into the box, and, and that can work out very well. But the U.S. can be so much more than that. They limit their ceiling by being so reductive in the attacking half and in the final third. They can get into the final third very easily because of the quality of players they have. But then when it, when it really the rubber meets the road, we've seen the U.S. be a little bit too reliant and, and not diverse enough in the attack other than just finding their crossing pattern. So I'd love to see the U.S. be dangerous in, in more ways than they have been in the past. And then my last thing, Taylor, I'm curious to, to know what you think about all of these is Andy Sullivan. I, I want to see someone other than Andy Sullivan at the six for at least one or two of these games. I do think her defensive value is extremely useful, or could be extremely useful for the U.S. against higher quality opposition. But throughout the W Championship, she really wasn't a big asset for the U.S. because they could control the game so much. So if Lacko's coming into a game where he thinks they're going to control, and I don't know how many of those are going to be in these next couple of windows, but there's going to be some moments where the U.S. is, is controlling the game I would love to see more of Sam Coffey, who I thought was bright against Nigeria. I'd be interested to see Jalen Howell, who's into the squad. She replaced Taylor Korniak. I, I want to see some other looks at the six because I'm not sure that Andy Sullivan is necessarily the player you want anchoring that midfield all the time for the U.S. women's national team. 
I think, Joe, you've hit the the nail on the head when it comes to some of the tactical things I wanted to see, because with this U.S. team, especially going up against England, who have all of the talent and ability and uh, veteran coaching nous, I think they're going to have a pretty tricky uh, opponent. And so playing, if not a simplified game, a more logical game that isn't just sort of cross it in the box and hope, that isn't just sort of like uh, force it down and see what happens, I think to have better, uh, more effective possession play will be a thing I very much want to see. I also want to see Vlatko make, uh, I I would say, useful in-game changes, both in terms of substitutions and tactical adjustments. I think that's sometimes where I start to get a little bit frustrated uh, with his tenure as manager thus far, is that lineup lineup issues aside, roster selection issues aside, uh, sometimes I feel like we don't get to see the U.S., make little adjustments that I think can uh, capitalize upon vulnerabilities in their opponent or vulnerabilities their opponent uh, suddenly presents, but also nullify their own vulnerabilities. And I think the U.S. has been so strong for so long that they sometimes don't have to adapt or aren't forced to adapt, and they can kind of keep kind of grinding away. But I think more recently that has become, if not a flaw, then a potential flaw. And so to see them make adjustments that nullify what England want to do, but also play into their own strengths, I think would make me feel uh, much, much better about Vlatko's, yeah. uh, Vlatko as a manager. And, and Taylor, are you sort of referencing, and I'd honestly forgotten about this until you started talking there, are you referencing the W Championship final where the U.S. is playing Canada and we don't see any subs for the U.S., even though they're 1-0 up yep. until the 80, what is it, the 88th minute? Mm-hmm. Uh, that was confusing, to say the least, and, and yep. I, I think certainly an error in that game, a needless error from Black Wandanovsky. So, yes, yeah, certainly being more proactive in some of his changes. And I think we'll see that right in a friendly because I, even though these are against really good teams, they are still friendly. So, you can learn a ton because of the quality of the opponent. But I don't know that the U.S. is going to live or die by these results, even though they always want to win. So, I bet we will see more frequent changes. But Either way, yeah, I'd forgotten about that Canada game. Game management is certainly something to keep our eyes out for on this window. Yeah, yeah, and that's why uh, I set the stage in the beginning of this question poorly. Joe, thank you for adding in the other dates uh, and mentioning Spain, who I think have 18 players withdrawing from contention. So who knows what that squad will look like, as you said. Uh, But these are still friendlies, but they're still, especially against England, uh, an opponent that will just present such challenges, even when they start making their changes, even in that, like, the final 20 minutes of a friendly when things aren't always as competitive, I think that's where the United States can still learn some things and make substitutions that, okay, we haven't had as much of the ball as we want, so we're going to swap out this midfielder for this midfielder and aim for retention, not just continue to play the same way while changing the personnel that are in there, but changing the personnel, but then also changing the approach on a micro level, potentially maybe a macro level at halftime, who knows? But that's the type of thing that I think can separate uh, good teams from great teams and will make the difference when we get to, to more competitive uh, knockout competitions. So that would that would be my hope for at least that Germany game. The Spain game, I, I don't know what to expect there because it's still going to be a Spanish team that are technical and, and solid, but definitely not as strong as they would have been with those players involved. Also some injuries playing a part there. Uh, but then Germany, uh, no no slouch either, and two games against them you would assume will be very, very good preparation. Let's stick with Germany for a minute, uh, potentially. Uh, Graham, we had a question from Andrew trying my best. Uh, That was his Twitter uh, uh, name, but also just a a good reminder that we're all trying our best. Uh, In the women's (laughs) game, uh, who now shares the elite tier with the U.S. women's national team? Who could break in and who could fall out in the near term? Uh, One to two women's World Cup slash Olympic cycles, says Andrew trying my best. 
So according to the bookmakers, the five favourites for the 2023 Women's World Cup next year, obviously being hosted by Australia and New Zealand. I'm very much looking forward to that. The five favourites are uh, the USA, number one. Number two, England. Third favourite, Germany. Fourth favourite, Spain. Fifth favourite, France. And beyond those five, you have you have quite a big drop-off in terms of the odds, or rather, the, the to use the correct terms the, the the odds get longer and and I, and I think that's I think that's fair um Spain had a they had a bad euros and as you've already referenced they've they've got a, a mutiny on their hands right now with the whole Jorge Vilda situation I don't know how that gets resolved um but I think once they have their best players back from 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 injury which was obviously a factor at, at the euros with Hermoso and Puteas not being available and once they move on from that Vilda mutiny I have them pretty much on a par with England and and, and Germany. In terms of um, who can break in, I'm not even sure it's fair to say England or, or Germany are going to break in because particularly in the case of Germany, they've been in that elite tier for a long time. England as well, you know, they've, they've maybe not won a World Cup yet, but they have made the semi-finals of the of the last four tournaments that they have played and and I think that England game against the US at WNT at Wembley this Friday night is is going to be something pretty special so tickets have sold out very quickly so that's 90 a 90,000 capacity crowd it's going to be on um national TV in in, in the UK it's going to be on a, a on a terrestrial channel it's going to be an ITV which basically means that's going to get a huge TV audience as well and England are obviously the European champions after winning the Euros and I think this is going to be a really good measure for England to judge themselves against the very best ahead of the the Women's World Cup. So I know the USWNT, they've not really been tested since the the Olympics last year. This is a measure for them. This game is also going to be a measure for for England. And then looking ahead to those other friendlies as well, you know, Spain, Spain's obviously up in the air right now, but Germany, they're also going to look at that as, as a measure. So those are the teams that I think you would expect at the Women's World Cup to be contenders. France obviously have the, the talent to be up there as well, but Karine Diacre is, is still a divisive figure. And I'm I'm still not totally sold on their balance as a team. That was the thing that, held me back from predicting them as winners at, at, at the Euros, just the the defensive structure that they have. They kind of rely on, on um, individual talent, which can obviously make them very entertaining to watch. But in terms of a team going all the way, I still have reservations about that France team. And um, in terms of teams that could fall out of that elite tier, I think the Netherlands at the moment are a, a bit of a low ebb. Mark Parsons wasn't in that 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 job for long. He, he has left um, since the Euros. There's a little bit of internal strife with, with the Dutch FA and, and not really knowing what direction to go in after they were so successful with Serena Wiegmann, of course, in charge of that team for a, a couple of tournaments, making the, the Women's World Cup final in 2019 and winning the Euros in 2017. So I, I, I would expect maybe the Netherlands to fall back a little bit. Brazil are a, di- a difficult one to judge at the moment because I was reading, I can't pretend to have watched a great deal of them recently. Really, I, I think the last time I would have watched them would be the, the, the 2019 Women's World Cup just because their games aren't really broadcast on UK TV. But I was reading ahead of the, the Copa America, they have this kind of young, bright new generation. So in a strange way, after a disappointing 2019 tournament, maybe Brazil are a good bet to have fallen back, but then maybe be resurgent by the time next year comes around. So those are the teams that I would I would keep an eye on. And, and, and the interesting thing about the elite level of the women's game right now is that while the US WNT are they're still the the dominant force, it feels like there's been. Correct me if I'm wrong on this. I, th- I think we we maybe have discussed this previously, but it feels like there's been a a shift in terms of the landscape since the last Women's World Cup. So all the European teams are 
are playing each other, their domestic leagues are getting stronger, the Women's Champions League is getting bigger and better. And it used to be the case that the, the US had this advantage because of the strength of their domestic game. And I'm not sure that advantage exists, at least not to the, the same extent anymore. So the dynamic in that respect might have flipped. And it used to be the case that the European teams were seeking out the US to test themselves. Yeah. And that's still happening to a certain extent. But now it feels like the US are going the other direction, coming to Europe for a run of friendlies to test themselves and kind of gauge what how the how the how high the rising tide is. And that that is an interesting thing for me ahead of this the of next year's World Cup. I think it's I think it's clear that the regional balance is shifting, right? So Europe is much stronger and deeper very clearly to me than any other region, right? Much deeper than CONCACAF, even though you have the United States as still the best team in the world. And Canada, having won the Olympics, has plenty of quality as well, although I really don't think they're in the same tier as England or Germany or the U.S. I think the the balance of power is starting to change. I still think, based off of player quality, that the NWSL is a much better level uh, than, than a lot of the European domestic leagues. But they're, those leagues are improving at a, a pretty impressive rate from what I've seen. So, yeah, as far as teams that are in this top tier, I have England, Germany, and the U.S. as the top three, two Euro finalists plus the U.S. women's national team who still have the most talent in the world by my eye. I don't see any of those teams falling out, uh, as Andrew asks. I could see a number of teams breaking into that level. I, I don't have France or Spain quite in that top, top tier. Brazil is an interesting shout, Graham. They have some young talent, some players that are on the rise to go along with veterans who have been around for a while, like Dabinia. But I don't know exactly where to put them. So based off this question, England, Germany, and the U.S. in the top tier, I don't see any of those teams falling. I could see a couple of other teams adding in over the next five, ten years or so. Uh, yeah, to stick with the rankings for a minute, I sort of had it as 1A and 1B. Uh, in 1A was England and Germany. 1B, I had Sweden, France, and the right on the verge of that would be Canada. I think I'd put them probably in there for their uh, Olympic success, and then they looked uh, plenty good at the W Championship. And then below that would be Netherlands, Brazil, Spain, Japan, Spain, because of the sort of turmoil we've been talking about. Graham, I think you did a great job of laying out why we should be paying more attention to Brazil. That was one when we did our question last week about um, if you had a co-ed competition where like uh, the men's team played one half, the women's team played the other. Nobody really mentioned Brazil, I don't think, or maybe we gave them sort of uh, a short selling. Uh, and I think a lot of that had to do with some of the confusion about the women's team and, and their relative strength. Are they sort of in that transitional period or are they kind of sticking with the veterans uh, for as long as they possibly can? So I think they are a team that really could uh, make that jump and will be a really exciting team uh, to keep an eye on. But much like the U.S., they haven't uh, had many competitions since the, the, the Olympics. They don't have the Euros, which gives us sort of more of an opportunity to see the strengths of those European teams. So I think uh, once we get more uh, like uh, the Olympics and Women's World Cup ro roll around, Obviously, that will give us an idea of how strong Brazil are. Uh, I wanted to mention Sweden, though. Graham, do you, do you have the odds in front of you still? I'm wondering where they were on that list. Um, if you fill for 10 seconds, sure. I'll find them for you. <laughs> sure, because it's a Sweden team that, that I think like maybe gets overshadowed by that 4-0 uh, smackdown that they got from England in the Euro semifinals. But there's so much strength across that team, both at veteran level. There are young players coming through. Uh, they have a, a historically... like a lot of success in knockout competitions and just seem to be one of those teams that even if they're not a favorite are just in that you cannot write them off. They're like the, the, the German national teams. You can never fully write them off uh, even if you kind of want to. Uh, so yeah. What, what about Sweden, Graham? 
Yeah, so they're eighth favourites at okay. fourteen to one. So beyond the the top five that I mentioned, it's Netherlands fourteen. Actually, um, they're joint sixth. So Netherlands, Australia, and Sweden are all on fourteen to one. And, and basically, the bookies are in agreement that there's kind of this this uh, this top five, and then there's a there's a tier beyond that, which is Netherlands, Australia, and Sweden, and then you get into Canada, Brazil, Norway, Japan. That's kind of how they see it. Gotcha. Uh, and then I think, Graham, you, you make a good point about the NWSL, and that's a thing, a conversation we were having about, is it still that top-tier league? Is it still sort of helping the U.S. develop? But that was a conversation we were having before the Yates report came out, obviously. And and I think we obviously don't know what impact that will have on the league, the perception of that league. Will players still want to come here? Will it send more players abroad, uh, both U.S. players and foreign players who could come here? Will they, will they go uh, to leagues in Europe because there's just so much uncertainty and confusion and anger and just negativity around the NWSL right now that I I wonder how big of an impact that will have. Then the, of course, terrifying reality is who's to say those same things aren't happening in European leagues as well. So it's really, again, an eye-opening moment and a very sad moment, but something that now I think permeates the way I think about the game a little bit more and maybe that's as it should be, sad as it may be, but something to keep in mind as we talk about these teams and games Going forward, on a happier, more silly note, uh, the idea of the United States, the world champions, playing England, the European champions, Graham, should we go the like professional wrestling route? Should they both have to put their titles on the line and whoever wins comes away with both? <laughs> uh, yes, and in that scenario, I will be uh, a, a fully paid-up member of... Uh, the US WNT yep. supporters group, and yeah, let's hope that the US wins in that scenario. Uh, the US women, champions of Europe. I'm into it. I Joe, like you good that. With that. I like that yeah. a lot. Yeah, wow. <laughs> I don't like England champions of the world nearly as much, though, yeah, but yeah. Uh, let's just pretend that that might not happen. No, that was a thing that they were pretty big on for like a couple hundred years. But That's, less true. So That's true. That's yeah. so true. They're out of practice now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, <laughs> on that imperial note, uh, let's take a quick break. Let's come back with more uh, Americans in Action centric questions. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach, Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. 
So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back. Joe, coming to you for this next one uh, from at Donovan McDowell. There's been a lot of mention of giving MLS teams more freedom when it comes to players and signings. What rules, if any, would you change to give teams more freedom, but also keep some semblance of parity? Now, I should say... This is not allocation disorder. We're not going fully into the weeds of GAM and TAM and, and terminology that makes my head hurt a Why little not? bit. Why not? Everyone loves that. <laughs> You're right. Never mind. Joe, I'm assuming you've read the entire <laughs> like salary budget, all the requirements, all the terminology. You know all these things. But on the off chance that you haven't sure. or that our listeners aren't familiar, I'm also uh, I'm like laying the groundwork for my, my argument. Uh, <laughs> but I think this can be very serious. It can be change this little mechanism to make this easier. It can also be somewhat ridiculous. I think any Anything that you think uh, would help, I would love to hear. Sure. Yeah. So I have Ryan and I talked a little bit about this last week about parity and, and the value of it and, and maybe tweaking some rules. We didn't get too deep in the weeds, though, and I don't know how deep we're, we're going to get here. I didn't go crazy deep in my research. The rule book is still uh, the roster rule book and mechanisms is still downloading into my brain. There's some sort of glitch. <laughs> I don't know. It hasn't been able to move past 20% for quite some time now. Either way, there's a few you gotta, software update, Joe. You got to get that software. Oh, brain update. I have not then updated to it. iOS yep. 16 mm-hmm. or whatever yep, it is. Yep, that yep. is that's on me. Uh, um, so a couple of obvious things that I just think are, are silly, right? So homegrown territories are silly. It, for me, they help out with uh, they, they help the teams that have no interest in establishing good youth setups, and they limit the teams that, that do want to do that stuff. And that, to me, just feels wholly counterproductive for everybody but the teams without ambition. And in so many ways, that is how MLS rules have been structured, is to protect those teams, which holds back the, the league as a whole. So I, I want to get rid of homegrown territories entirely. MLS has taken steps to get closer to that point, but you can still sense the compromise involved in all of that stuff. Get rid of like just ridiculous things like the discovery list as well, or, or yes. at least call it something different. Come on, you're not discovering anybody, right? I mean, you're not. DeAndre Yedlin, I think, was on the discovery list at some point. You know, everybody knows who DeAndre Yedlin is, right? No MLS team's like, oh, I found DeAndre Yedlin. I've never yeah. heard of this person before. I, yeah. I cannot stress how stupid that rule is. It like just, the, it, it's just honestly, I can't, I can't even wait, comprehend it. <laughs> for people who are like not as big of, on MLS, Joe, can you explain what that discovery list actually is? Because it is ridiculous, and I do think like Zlatan was on there as well because uh, yeah. he had never been discovered. <laughs> yeah, so this is part of the discovery process for MLS, which basically means clubs clubs can sign or or scout players who aren't under contract with MLS, who are right, are not subject to these other mechanisms. Those players are known as discovery players. So uh, to go through and obtain the rights to a discovery player, a club has to place the player on their list, which means they have to file a claim with the league office. Ryan Bailey actually did a phenomenal write-up on this for Charlotte. Uh, and so a lot of my research who? comes from... Yeah, Ryan Ryan Bailey. Um, oh, no, I meant Brian, Charlotte. Who's Charlotte? What's oh, that? I see. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. well, we can talk about that another time, right? <laughs> Um, so basically, these players can be added to this discovery list, and if you add them to your discovery list, then you have an advantage in being able to sign them relative to it. It just it, it doesn't make sense to me. It really doesn't make sense, and certainly the name doesn't make sense. If you're going to try to have a rule like this, at least give it more clever branding. I don't know why I'm so bent out of shape about that, but it just makes absolutely no sense to it's, me. 
It's basically just what my father-in-law does when he thinks he's got like a good soccer recommendation for me. And he's like, oh, Graham, um, here's this thing you might not have heard of before, um, like the World Cup. I don't know if you've heard of that before. I I have to pretend that I haven't. Yeah. And he he, just to make him feel good that he's like giving me a recommendation (laughs) I didn't know about. That is basically what it is. Can they, or at the very least, can they just get rid of the fancy terminology and call it what what it is, which is dibs? You're just yeah, calling dibs, dibs on people. That's <laughs> it. Dibs. Like, it's the dibs list. <laughs> as long as that stands for discovery. Shoot, we need an acronym, right? D-I-B. Discovery something, something. We'll work on that uh, over the course discovery of Discovery of international-based soccerers. Boom. Dibs. And so- the S is in. Oh, yeah, nice. Okay, yeah, that does work. That's None of those are my actual answer to this question, but I do think they should go away. So my, my real and the main part of my answer is, just get rid of so many of the roster spending buckets. Like there, there's too many buckets. It's too complicated. It's it's not helpful for fans who are trying to get into the league, which is not that important in the grand scheme of things. That that pales in comparison from at least the owner's perspective to how they're actually spending their own money. But maybe just have like a, a spending floor where you have to spend at least X amount of money and a spending ceiling where you can't spend more than Y amount of money. Right? Have a range. And have teams be able to operate within that range. And the ambitious teams are going to spend a lot. And the teams that don't care aren't going to spend very much. And that's already kind of what's happening. In my head, this allows teams that want to spend more to actually go out and do that without having to bend over backwards and get accused of cheating three times along the way. It just, I think simplifying this process and still allowing players to go out and sign stars, right? Maybe maybe there is a salary component to this as well. Maybe there is other details here. But at a basic level simplifying the process and getting rid of some of these buckets and increasing the amount of money that the teams can spend, or at least the ceiling of what they can and are allowed to spend, seems valuable to me. Broadly speaking, is it ever good to be reliant on a series of buckets? Like, I feel like that means your roof is leaking. <laughs> that means that you're not ordering your boat is leaking the table. for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah I mean, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I guess he has the one bucket, so maybe that's okay. But yeah, anytime you've got a bunch of buckets that you got to keep track of, I'm, it just I'm feels sure bad. Yeah, yeah, it's not great. It's not great. So yeah. maybe maybe that's that's a good start, Joe. Uh, Graham, where should we head next then? Okay, so here's my first point, and I'm not sure this will be popular a popular opinion with everyone, but MLS. This this is my starting point. This is my mission statement, right? MLS needs less parity, right? So I'm not saying MLS should be aimed to be like. Liga or the Scottish Premiership or the, or the Bundesliga where you only have one or two dominant teams. that That's the other end of the spectrum. But I think MLS at the moment finds itself at the, the opposite end of that, of, of that spectrum and you want to be somewhere in the middle. So to grow as a league, I do believe MLS needs a more established hierarchy of teams. And this is where this kind of goes against my uh, anti-billionaire stance. But nonetheless, I'm trying to grow MLS as a league here. That probably means allowing the richer teams with richer owners more freedom to spend more of their money. So similar to Joe, I would simplify the roster rules. I would go pretty uh, pretty extreme. I'd go uh, full austerity in terms of no, I'd get rid of TAM and GAM and even DPs. I'd get rid of the whole thing. And what I'd do is I'd put a luxury tax on transfers. And with, with that money from the luxury tax... Um, going into the overall salary budget for the following season for the whole league and that tax would apply to transfer fees and salaries over uh, over the cap um, and this would do two things so it would allow clubs to basically with a lot a lot more freedom assemble the best rosters they can without having to dodge duck and dodge all these rules um, but it also should in theory lift the, the bottom level of the league obviously the difficult part 
is knowing what to set the luxury tax at. And you'd likely have different thresholds depending on the, the size of the transfers and the salaries. But as long as it was something meaningful and something that clubs had to factor into their salaries and their transfers and not just a token amount, I, I think it could work well in terms of allowing that freedom, but also kind of keeping a semblance of parity in that the teams at the bottom of the ladder are still getting something from the big players coming into the league. And there's an opportunity there for, for them to climb up the table. The other things that I would uh, I would have is I would take uh, I would discount homegrown players from the cap entirely. So that would be an incentive for teams to develop their own players, which obviously there's there's already that incentive there. But not only that, this is the important bit. I think there's an incentive there for them to keep hold of their their best homegrown players. And I understand at the moment for MLS clubs, it's important for them to to act as a springboard for players. Um, but the league, if it's going to become one of the best in the world, it needs to keep hold of its best players. Um, so let's remove homegrown players from from the cap at, of, of the clubs that they were developed at. And just in general, I would I would lift the cap as a whole so that the bottom level, that's the bit I really want to improve with this, so that the bottom level, basically you're improving the worst player in any given team, um, which hopefully would lift the, the overall level of the league but my main one is the luxury tax i just want to get rid of all those all those rules all the complication and allow teams to spend their money but not without some sort of tax that would benefit teams lower in the ladder and as uh donovan mcdowell said you have to have the semblance of parity and graham i do think you have that but the the simplest way to get that with what you're talking about is to go the the political route in the way that uh you change the wording to like right to work but that basically means you're like anti-union uh so in this case we're going to call it the parity distribution payment system and now <laughs> you've got parity in there so it sounds like there's parity even if uh, you're allowing teams to spend uh, more and now it will get approved so congratulations graham uh, i think you all have fixed this i don't know if if we need to then hear my ridiculous no, idea we do. but i'm going we for do. it no, anyway we do. yeah we do uh pretty simple the cities with the lowest lowest tourism numbers get to spend extra it's called the coastal elite tax because lake michigan chicago <laughs> chicago sorry you don't get this uh extra money for an extra dp slot basically the league covers the uh the salary budget hit and then you have to pay the excess which maybe some smaller clubs won't want to do anyway I don't know if I want to make that a tradable spot to make this even more confusing. You can trade away that DP spot for more money. Uh, but yeah, it basically incentivizes uh, smaller teams and gives them a little bit more uh, like a competitive ability. Or at the very least, it allows them to bring in a couple more big names. Uh, just because I think sometimes when we hear about players who are considering going to Major League Soccer, it's New York, it's LA, it's Miami, maybe it's Chicago. Uh, I don't know how many other cities are in there. I'm not going to name any ones that come to mind because when I do, they get mad. They get very, very mad. Uh, but I will just say that the, But those aren't necessarily things that that fan base or the owners can control because maybe you don't have as much tourism, maybe there isn't as much infrastructure, whatever it may be. Uh, so you're getting an extra DP slot to make up for it. Uh, I feel like that's the, the final, the cherry on top. I think we've done this, gentlemen. I think we fixed it. By adding, by removing a bunch of buckets yeah. and then simultaneously adding, adding more, more buckets. what could go wrong? Uh, very good. Yeah, and I think for for your uh, measure, Taylor, we, uh -huh. we MLS should pick the players up in a van at the airport, blindfold yep. them, and then Don Garber just drives them like they have no idea where they're going. Um, yeah. That would that would be another thing I would add. Welcome That's to Kansas City, baby. Welcome yeah, right. to Kansas City. <laughs> Joe said it, Kansas Cityans. Uh, Nothing against airport. Kansas City. I'm is just it, being, isn't Kansas City meant to be nice? I Kansas, Kansas City's City great. Was, I think oh, I know it's yeah. barbecue. It's, 
Oh no, it's yeah. it's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's just it it like it doesn't have the uh like the name recognition uh maybe in the rest of the world. And I'm gonna say a lot of that has to do with the ridiculous size of your airport, Kansas City. I know you're fixing that for oh. the 2026 World Cup. It is the smallest airport I have ever experienced. We're now on to transportation trash talk. Whoa, this is getting serious now. Suck on that, not, Kansas City. I need you to understand, this is not an opinion. Like, it is for as big of a city, as historically significant of a city as Kansas City is, it is a hilariously small airport. Like, it's one of the ones where you land, you walk out of your plane, and you are basically outside. Uh, it, it's, <laughs> it's real, real small. But I think they are fixing it. I think they are getting a bigger one. And I've never had a delay there. So maybe they've just figured out how to make it work. Well, I'm going to try one, to get myself out well, of this. Only one Hudson News, is it? Not multiple <laughs> Hudson News. <laughs> Uh, yes, that is correct. Uh, and the bottles of water remain $15 a piece. Uh, let's keep it moving here. Graham coming to you for this one, uh, which is an interesting one. And it's one that I think we sort of have landed upon at various points that it's a weird thing about American fandom. It comes from Tim Katz, who says, It seems like a lot, emphasizing a lot, more American soccer fans are national team first, club second, if at all. Than is usually the case in other countries. Is my impression correct? Where else do you see this globally? So two parters there. Uh, Graham, first one, do you feel like Tim is correct in that assertion? Yes, I do. There so this is somewhat subjective, um, and I couldn't really find any, any data to, to back this up. I, I, I guess that's not really something that's commonly collected, um, but subjectively, yes, I think this, this is true. Certainly my view that it, it is the case. Um, and I wonder, I just wonder, I was trying to think of theories as to why that would be the case in the States. Because certainly in Scotland, you know, Scotland had a, had a very good international window there. But within two days of that being over, the, the discussions moved on and no one's really mentioned uh, Scotland. I know we're not going to the World Cup, but it's similar with England. You know, the discussion has moved on very quickly, despite the fact that they're having a lot of the, the same problems as the, as the USMNT ahead of the, the World Cup. So I wonder with the US, if it's, if it's down to the maturity of the US as a soccer nation. Because when I, when I speak to older fans in Scotland you will find that loads of those fans were, decades ago, they would count themselves as country over club. And I think that dynamic has changed over over the decades. So some of that might have been down to Scotland enjoying success in decades gone by and re- reaching pretty much every tournament and, and World Cup as we did for a number of decades. But I think over time, the culture around the clubs and in and, and Scotland, I'm using this example because obviously I've got a personal connection to it, the culture around Celtic and Rangers in particular, it just becomes so ingrained that it, it dominates the entire landscape. And I think you have something similar in England and in Spain and um, in Italy. Basically, a lot of the, the, the big European European soccer nations have have this similar thing. MLS in the states it doesn't dominate the landscape in American soccer like it does uh, like the clubs do in England or Scotland or some of the other European nations. I think a lot of that is just down to the fact that a lot of these clubs are pretty young in the grand scheme of things. That that culture isn't ingrained in those cities and in the culture as a whole and over time that culture will become more deeply ingrained and I and I wonder if that's when the dynamic that Tim references in, in his question, I wonder if that's when it when it shifts. And when I was thinking of another country that's similar to the US, the one that I kept coming back to um, was Australia. And obviously there are some strong parallels to be drawn with the USA in, in, in that Australia also doesn't have that... Um, 
that that traditional soccer culture certainly certainly in the mainstream it hasn't been there for for decades and decades and even centuries like it has in a lot of the the European countries they have a growing league in the A-League that, that hasn't been around for long in the grand scheme of things and there's new teams and rebranded teams and it still very much feels like it's evolving and and kind of finding its its footing. I would say MLS is actually a more developed league than, than the A-League at this point. Um, so fans in Australia turn to the Socceroos for, for the focus of, of, of their fandom. I think that is that has to be a, a, a factor in all this. Would, would, would you guys maybe, would, would you agree or disagree with, with any of that? Yeah. No, I, th- I think a lot of the logic is sound, Graham. I, I went through a similar process in trying to figure out, okay, why is why do I also share the same sense that Tim has about fans in the U.S., or many of them caring more about the U.S. national teams versus their club team? And I think there's a lot of different reasons. Lots of areas without pro clubs, right? You mentioned the newness of both MLS and a lot of these clubs. In, I mean, MLS has been around for, for over 25 years now, but a lot of clubs have been around for five years or less, right? I mean, that's the that's the idea of expansion, 10 years or less. A ton of clubs in MLS are new, and the same goes for lower division teams as well. And on the women's soccer side, right? These, these teams are popping up. And so before those teams ever existed, folks were watching the national teams, right? And so there is still that allegiance there. And then you have the fact that many people don't like MLS if we're looking on the men's side and they'd rather watch a Premier League team, right? I was going to say Manchester United, Taylor. I think you're, you're sort of looped into that because you have that attachment to a team overseas more so than you might have for you know your average MLS team. I know there's DC United in there too for you. So it's not that cut and dry. But I think there's all sorts of factors and the longevity and the establishment, the how established a league is, I think factors in here. And so Australia, I think, is a really good shout. I was trying to think of other areas that apply to this and I, I didn't have a ton of success because I feel like a lot of the, the soccer nations that we talk about the most very much don't have this same priority, right? So in England, I think teams or fans generally speaking value their club over your country. I, I think if we asked Ryan Wimbledon or England having success, you would say Wimbledon hands down, right? Maybe we can ask him later this week. In Spain, I have a similar sense. Graham, maybe you disagree. In Germany, a lot of these countries, I think you have fans that value club over country. And so it does take a league or a nation with some different circumstances, either a newer soccer country or a country where there's other sports really competing. It takes that that little extra kick for, I think, fans to default to the national team over club teams. I think, I think the biggest European nation that is as close to the US is probably Germany. I would say so. Spain, I Spain is I would say in terms of of the the fan base of the country as a whole, they, they are extremely disinterested in their national team. So much so that whenever Spain play uh, games in in in, in Spain. The, the, it's pretty common for the crowds to be pretty sparse and they don't tend to play in the Bernabeu in the camp now they, or certainly obviously they don't play in the camp now but you get my point they don't play in the biggest stadiums Germany there seems to be a greater sense of the Bundesliga exists to produce players for the national team so even though they've got that you know centuries old um, establishment you know they've, they've, they've got that tradition and history that maybe the US doesn't It's I would say Germany is the closest in terms of I would I would predict an estimate that a good number of German football fans are as invested in their national team as a lot of US fans are. I, I would agree with that, Graham. And I wonder how much of that, if this makes sense, I think it does, relates to Bayern Munich's dominance. Because so many national teams, I think, do have those divisions. You talked about Spain, and a lot of that is Barca and Real Madrid, Atleti in there too with some of the rivalries, but I'm assuming Scotland, for example. Like I'm guessing there are Celtic fans who will cheer for a Rangers player when he's playing for the national team, but maybe just not cheer quite as loudly. And so you'll get those club divisions 
just maybe making the rooting interests be varied. Whereas in Germany, when you know Bundes- or you know Bayern Munich are likely to win, I, I don't know how many like huge divisions there are if there are as many in that way. So I wonder if that maybe makes people more excited to cheer for their national team because, hey, I get to root for a winner instead of having to root for Bochum as they get destroyed by Bayern. Uh, I wonder if maybe that goes some of the way yeah. towards explaining that. Uh, Germany aside, I, the other two that jumped to mind for me, and I don't know if this is true. This is definitely an, a, an idea born of ignorance. But my assumption is that the Republic of Korea and Japan would also be something like that, where they have their own domestic leagues. But I think there's a lot of interest in their players going abroad and especially uh, like star players who reach that next level. And then supporting their national teams, I think, is also a pretty big priority. So, again, I think there's a, an idea of... Countries where soccer is, if if not like new, then relatively new, uh, where the leagues aren't maybe as respected or as seen as like as prestigious. So you want a little bit more of that standing, and I think that is where some of this uh, comes from in my mind for for U.S. fans. I think there's two things. I think one is reputation to some extent. This is I'll speak for myself here, but I think this probably will resonate with some people. I think there is an idea, like maybe subconsciously with U.S. fans, that if they go really deep in a World Cup, if they make a successful run, or eventually if they win one, it becomes impossible for people to make fun of American soccer and Americans who like soccer. And you call it the wrong name, and you Yanks don't know what you're talking about, and kind of being dismissive of the American accent when it comes to to soccer or football. Uh, if if there's a really successful U.S. team that has a ton of talent and and kind of demands recognition or respect, it makes it so the case that I think American fans can feel maybe more comfortable talking about it or feel like they can talk about it on that same level. And that might be a self-created idea by me. That might be a self-created uh, idea by the fan base. But I think the kind of reputation and recognition of the national team is sort of rolled into that uh, idea. Yeah. Joe, how off base am I? No, I, I don't think you're that off base at all. I think reputation does play a part in this. And, and also with the idea of the domestic league too. I think all of these factor in and, and it just happens that the U.S. is in a unique spot, right? The national teams are, are very different in their successes in the past, right? On the men's and women's side, you're looking at a league that is still growing and has done things in a very different American-y kind of way. Right? We just finished talking about all these different ridiculous roster mechanisms, and, that, and that's part of this too. right? So all of these factors create this very strange, unique soccer puddle, and other countries and other leagues might share different aspects of it. Like They might, they might be wet too, I guess, right? if we're talking about puddles here, but it, it, it's going to be different. So the U.S., Tim, I think has a lot of the sentiment that you're talking about, and Taylor, I do think the reputation is kind of part of that. Yeah, and, and something, something kind of connected to that this isn't down in my notes I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out how to word this how on the men's side how much of a motivation is it for US fans that it's feasible that within their lifetime they will see the US become the best men's national team in the world because that that is if you know when you look at population base and resources like that is feasible that that could that could happen in our lifetime our lifetime so is that? Um, does anyone get the sense that that is maybe a motivation for fans almost to get in on the ground level and be like, well, you know, I was, yeah. I was, uh, yeah. I was a fan when we, you know, we were outside the top ten in the world, and now we're the the, the best in the world. Do you know what I mean? There, there, there's kind of this, there's this maybe maybe it is a la- a lazy stereotype about American uh, sports fans 
that they're they're only kind of interested if they're the best in something, right? I, I kind of see that with the Olympics a little bit. I'm always amazed at the American interest in the Olympics. Not that it's not a mainstream thing in the UK, but it's a, it's a little bit of a sideshow in, in the UK where if, whenever I've been in America when the Olympics are on, it's like the main thing. Everyone's talking about it, it's on TV. And I think a large part of that is because America can finish top of the medal table. With soccer, I know you at the US men's team isn't there yet, but the fact that that could happen one day, is that a motivation at all? Yeah, I think it is. I think in in two ways, for me at least. Number one, Graham, to your point, like, yeah, I grew up with uh, a mom who cared a lot about the Winter Olympics. And I remember, like, checking the medals tally on the front page of the newspaper every day and just being like, get out of here, Norway. Stop thinking you're better than us. Like, I'm really <laughs> caring about uh, being, yeah, the top team with the most gold medals, which is silly because I can't say I knew a ton about the biathlon or the, the long jump or something like that. I mean, like that's that, on you, though, to be honest. True. That is definitely true. And it is. And it's something I've worked very hard to rectify, Joe. I have not. I still don't quite understand that one. Skiing and shooting, sure. Uh, ski shooting makes sense, that's, I guess. That's, ski just, shooting? that's just a commute in Scotland. <laughs> I don't know why I find that so funny, but I do. Um, so, yeah, Graham, I think there is an idea of, like, we want to be the best. I think with that, there's also, and I think what you're describing is, is gatekeeping. There's definitely a... I've been following this team for so long. You youngsters who don't have to do all the things and jump through all the hoops that we used to have to. I think there is an element there of sort of like you you guys don't know as much about this team. You don't know as much about the sport. I think of like when I was first like getting into the national team, like I remember that 2002 World Cup team uh, fairly well. But at the same time, I remember their first game or that when the roster was announced and be like, who, who are these guys? Wait a minute. Who, do we have a guy who plays for Ajax? What? How did that happen? Like, I think there wasn't just as much coverage or wasn't much availability of coverage. And so you used to have to go on those message boards and you couldn't get people scouting every team. You'd have to Ferris Bueller style get a like and like big soccer or something like that, a report of like my best friend's sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from a guy who knows this girl who saw Josh Gatt score a goal from Molda last night in Norway. Like you, you couldn't sort of find all these reports. You didn't have Y scout. And so you had to work really hard to know what was going on with us players, because oftentimes they weren't going to these huge clubs. They were going to smaller clubs where there wasn't as much attention. You couldn't sort of watch them uh, in the limited capacity that you could watch soccer at that time. And obviously that's gotten much easier but I think there is this baked in idea that we've got to track everybody. We've got to know what everybody's doing because we want to know like who might be falling through the cracks. Is there this guy in the second division who could play for the United States and we need to go after because he could make that difference. And I think there's an idea of we've got to do everything possible to be the best to reach that level. And we can't like drop any players along the way. So I, th- I think there is probably some of that perspective mixed in for sure. No, that's that's all very interesting. I just didn't really have a... It, I, I feared it might be a lazy assumption, but maybe maybe not so much. No, I mean, I, and I think I, I think as a mainstream mainstream sport, soccer probably doesn't uh, pick up steam. Like you could say, like the women's the women's national team always resonates when they're playing those competitions because there's always a chance they will win. And I think with the U.S. men, it's just less of like, oh, great, you made it like past the knockout round you made it to the quarterfinals well who cares you didn't win the whole thing i think there's still going to be a group uh, a subset of people a subset of sports fans who don't really care until the u.s makes a final or wins a final until then it's just like yeah well you what you're the eighth best team in the world who cares be the best team in the world so i do think that mentality does play a part maybe it's diminishing maybe i'm outdated as well you never know but i, I think that's a a solid shout by you Mr. Ruthven, uh, we look forward to your letters if you disagree. Uh, <laughs> let's take one more break. We've got a few more questions to get to back soon. 
Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Welcome back. Three more questions. We're going to try to get through these somewhat quicker than we got through the first four. Uh, from at Dicey Danny, what national team plays like the USMNT wants to play? Joe Lowry. All right. So my sort of realization after the September yep. window is like, what? Do you, what is the US? Right? What is <laughs> what is soccer? Right? I mean, oh boy. that's sort oh boy. of what, that's sort of what we've we got the to. Existential dread part of the show. Yeah, here we're, we going, go. we're going. We're going base level here. Is oh is Graham? You were talking about the US's style, and then I, I remember this on the the show after the Saudi Arabia game, I guess. And then I was thinking, well, you know, the US did go more pragmatic for some games against Mexico, so they have that in their bag. And then they come out against Japan, the perfect chance to do that, and they don't do it. And they come out against Saudi Arabia, and they can't create. Imp- I mean, what? I don't really feel like I have a very good read on how the U.S. wants to play. I feel like there's some micro things that we know about them, but I really don't know anymore. So it's creating chances with possession. National teams that I think try to do that stuff are Italy, who won the Euros doing that, and I thought were incredibly good to watch. In Spain, who maybe are a little pass-happy at times, but but still like to control the ball very much so and create with it. If it's maybe somewhere in between possession and transition, maybe it's Germany, with a little bit of their their transition play in there with the high-energy players. They have tons of speed in that team. The U.S. does have a lot of speed as well. 
Maybe it's Senegal. Is some in that same way? They play out of a 4-3-3 most of the time. I think they might be a little more fluid or loose than the U.S. men's national team does tend to be in terms of their positioning. Maybe not quite as rigid. I, I, I genuinely do not know anymore how to answer this question. Day one, U.S. men's national team, 2019 against Panama, inverted right back. I would have gone with an Italy or a Spain type of team. Now, I, I, I honestly do not know. Yeah, it's a tricky one. And, and I found myself like having a hard time because even when there was a team like Spain, for example, you mentioned them, Joe, there are a lot of similarities. It's attacking fullbacks who help provide the width. It's a single pivot uh, holding midfielder, but then it's Alvaro Morata up top, who I would not say is doing Jesus Ferreira. Sure. Yeah. Different roles. Yeah. So, yeah. There's just, and like uh, Brazil in a four, three, three obviously wants to have a lot of uh, possession. Uh, but then Casemiro, I think is doing very different things than Tyler Adams does in that spot. So I think there are teams that do, like the U.S. does an approximation of or does like picks and chooses certain pieces from. But I think it was interesting to me that, Joe, you started looking at like Senegal, for example, because the one that I ended up looking at uh, was Ecuador, where I think it's it's same sort of structure, same midfield shape, maybe not as good on the ball, not as likely to have like sustained uh, possession and a lot of like creative one and two touch passing through the middle. But I think can sort of grind their way to results, can play in a physical sort of game, but can also handle the technical side of things too. Uh, So that was where I was looking, and maybe that's not the answer people would like. But I think ultimately the answer is they play like a couple different national teams, but also don't play like those same national teams at the same time. Graham, where are you on this one? So in my notes, I've got Germany question mark, Mm -hmm. which was pretty much where I I, I landed on. Um, So Hansi Flick, he's he's used a back three recently with wing backs. So if we're talking about the the team that is currently playing, then maybe not so many in terms of formation and shape, maybe not, not so much overlap. But if we're talking about core principles of a team, Germany play this proactive possession-based game that has a lot of intensity on and off the ball. So I guess there's there's quite a lot of overlap with what Baralter wants to achieve, whether he is achieving that or not is, is another debate entirely. And I guess that's not so surprising when you consider Baralter. He spent a, a good portion of his career as a, as a player in Germany. So you would think he would he would soak up some ideas there. So Germany was was my pick, right. but whether, whether the US is actually there or not, uh, yeah, not so sure. All right. Our answer is Germany, question mark. I like it. That feels right. <laughs> All right. We're going to keep it moving. Next up, Mike Horowitz, who asks, would the USMNT be better off in the long run playing a Red Bull style? Not that it'll change before the World Cup, but it seems more sustainable and less reliant on individual skill. Graham, how say you? I don't think that's a bad shout at all, actually. Um, so Red Bull style is very much reliant on hard running, high intensity. There is there is a bit of overlap in terms of what the US or what we think the Veralter wants to do with the US. Um, but I guess and you're kind of taking away the, the intricate possession part of it. Um, you're being slightly more direct. I, I, I guess the problem would be that you need a, a high level of fitness to play the Red Bull way and and at international level you you don't really have the the freedom or the time to work on the fitness of your players so i guess you could give them individual programs but you're 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 very much reliant on what your players are doing um with 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 their clubs but if if you if you did have a high level of fitness in your squad that a natural fitness 
I, I think there's an argument that the the Red Bull style would work would work pretty well. I'd argue that Mancini's Italy were quite Red Bully in the way that they won the Euros and that it was all about intensity off the ball and then getting players into attacking areas as, as quickly and and directly as possible, having ball carriers. Um, so yeah, not a bad shout at all. If only there was an, an American coach out there who had uh, you know come through the Red Bull system and could implement that sort of style of play before the. The 2026 World Cup, just a shame there there isn't anyone out there like that. Uh, Graham, to play devil's advocate for a moment, uh, I, I and full disclosure, I had this conversation with a buddy of mine today, and I think I kind of failed to explain why this why this might be a challenge. When you talk about the, the fitness issue, I think the logical response to that would be, well, they're all professional athletes. Like, shouldn't they all be pretty fit? Why is that such an issue? Um, yes, professional athletes do have a certain degree of fitness, but... Mm-hmm. Red Bull is red. The Red Bull style is exceptionally yep. intense in terms of what it what it demands. Um, Jesse Marsh at Leeds, you look at how they play and how they tend to sometimes drop off in the in the second half of games. Uh, Bielsa, there was a lot of overlap there as well with 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 Leeds. His teams dropped off in the second half of of seasons pretty dramatically. So even at teams where they where they are, they do have that time on the training field and in the gym, and players are working on their fitness. You look at Eric Ten Hag; he doesn't really play a a a, a Red Bull way necessarily, but he does demand a, a higher level of fitness. At Manchester United, he is he's made a big thing of the fact that his players are not fit enough to play the way that he wants to right now. So he's having to compromise. My United are being a little bit more compact at the moment. Um, not they're not able to play at the same intensity for full full matches. They're having to play in twenty minute bursts and and over the course of the match. So. Yes, professional athletes are very fit, but I, I think it would be naive to expect all athletes. I guess it just comes down to reps, right? If you're playing in a certain way in every single game, you're going to have the, the fitness that that style of play demands. Whereas if you're not doing that, then that might not be the case. I, I honestly don't think fitness is a big problem in this whole situation. I, I do agree that that, that hyper aggressive style can take more out of players. But realistically, if you tone that down like half a notch... I think every player in the U.S. pool could go out there tomorrow, assuming they're healthy, and 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 play a really aggressive up-tempo and, and style and just run a bunch. I think that is very feasible. For me, the, the challenge with the Red Bull style is that the U.S. as a soccer nation on the men's side has to do two very different things depending on the setting. And Bob Morocco had a really good tweet about this that stood out to me last week, and, and I think it relates to this question. He said, since the 2006 cycle... The USMNT has had to figure out how to play as a regional power, a regional power and a global mid-major. So that's kind of a college sports reference there. But basically, in in the U.S. and in CONCACAF, the U.S. is a power, right? They are a, a top team in the region relative to the other teams that they face in World Cup qualifying and the Gold Cup, that kind of stuff. So should the U.S. play a Red Bull style? In some cases, yes, right, when they're maybe the global mid-major. So you're talking about the World Cup, where they're likely not going to dominate the ball all the time, and they're not going to be the most talented team on the field. In that case, the press and and the vertical attacking can be an equalizer of of some sort. But is that style going to work against Honduras in World Cup qualifying when they have no interest in stepping forward to actually play? I I don't think so. No, I don't think that's going to work at all. So you have to develop good soccer players who can do some good soccer stuff for those moments when you are a regional power. But then I do think, to get to Mike's question, I do think there is an idea that having this energy up-tempo style that's a little bit more in the Red Bull direction to help you in moments when you're playing against teams who are better than you, those those are also valuable things. So there, there's not a an obvious answer here. The end of that Bob Morocco tweet is this. 
pretty clear that there is no one-size-fits-all solution with the current talent pool, and I think he's totally right. It's not a no-brainer to go out there and dominate the ball every game because you probably don't have the talent and quality to do that, and it's not a no-brainer to go out there and Red Bull your way to, to trophies because I'm not really sure that tactically you can actually accomplish that. So, yeah, I, I really don't know the answer to this question either. I don't think the U.S. should play a Red Bull style every single game, even though they might be able to implement that, I'm not sure that's a path towards lasting success any more than sort of what we've seen from Greg Berhalter as a path towards lasting success. So we like Wofford, Joe? Is that what you're telling me? Wofford? Yeah, I mean, any any of the yo-yo clubs, right? It's Norwich. No, no, I'm saying Wofford as in the mid-major basketball program. Oh. W-O-F-F-O-R. Yeah. Are we Belmont? Northern Iowa? Who do you want us to be? We could be classic Wichita State, who I think there had a really go. up-tempo sort of style anyway with the aggressive pressure. So maybe... Maybe just being Wichita State is the answer to that. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. It's it's difficult. It's a problem. And, and Greg Berhalter, I think it's pretty clear, has not solved that problem, nor will his successor likely solve that either until the U.S. has the talent to just play teams off the field like most European teams do, England or or Spain mm. or Germany, whatever that looks like, France. Until that happens, it's, it's going to be a constant question around this group. I am wildly out of my depth with the college basketball chat. <laughs> Were those teams? <laughs> they are. They are teams. Graham, Correct. Uh, in what state is Wichita State? Oh, no. Um, <laughs> Here's the a state that, We've the, talked about the state that Springfield is in in The Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> That's good uh, enough for me. Yeah, uh, let's go with that one. Let's go with that one. Um, final question of the day uh, comes from USMNT Nerd. Who's the most important player we need healthy for Qatar? Uh, Mike, I'm going to come to you, Joe, for this one. Sure. Joe first. Yeah. Um, uh, but I want to first know, do we all have one answer or do we all have a couple possibilities here? Even if the question was who's the most important player, I, I feel I like ha- I have two or three. I have one answer that for me is head okay. and shoulders above the rest, and then I have a number two answer and then a number three answer. Okay, that's where I am as well. Graham, are you similar or did you actually follow the assignment? <laughs> so the way this thing works is I have a number one that I will mention if I'm asked first. And if Joe is asked first and he says my number one, then I will switch my <laughs> answer to another player. That's how this thing works, right? All right, here's, here, I want to see if we're all in the same order here. So instead of Joe, Graham, who is your number one? My number one is Tyler Adams. Is Joe, that who is your number one? Matt Turner, hands oh, down okay. by a thousand percent. It's Matt Turner for me. Wow, interesting. He's I on the also, list. I also have Tyler Adams. So I don't. Uh, I don't even so, have Tyler Adams in my top three at this point. To be honest with you, maybe wow. that makes me a fake fan. Maybe that makes me a fake media member. But yeah, he's he's outside <laughs> my top three. Joe, can you go ahead and mute your audio for the rest of this question? Yeah, you got uh, it. And you should just hang your head in shame. Okay. Well, uh, Graham and I talk about why Tyler Adams is the most important player uh, to stay healthy. Graham, go ahead. I just don't think there's another player in the, in the pool who can do what he does for the USMNT. So if you take him. Out of the, the base of the midfield, I think you have quite a big drop-off to, to Kellen Acosta, who's probably the deputy in that position, in terms of how he can perform that role. And if, if Adams is missing for the, for the US, I'd, I'd seriously be thinking, not that I expect Berhalter to do this, but I'd, I'd seriously be thinking about completely rebuilding my my whole midfield, just because I don't think the the the, the way that the US plays with the two number eights and then Adams as a, as a number six, if you take him out of that equation, I, I just... I don't think it works at all. So I can understand why Matt Turner, uh, Joe's gone for Matt Turner. He has, he's my third pick on my list. But yeah, my answer is, my answer is Tyler, so, Tyler Adams. So i sorry, I unmuted myself. I never really muted myself. <laughs> That's the secret here. Um, I, I don't disagree that there's no one in the US pool who can do exactly what Tyler Adams does. I think that's true. 
my reasoning for leaving him out of my top three even is that I think the the value that you lose by having to replace Tyler Adams is less than the value you lose by replacing Matt Turner, first of all. So Turner is very clearly the best shot stopper the U.S. has. He saved them multiple goals back in the September window. If he doesn't start for the U.S. in Qatar and Zach Steffen somehow claims that job, I, I would be surprised if the U.S. makes it out of the group stage. That That is how important I think Matt Turner is to this team. The drop-off in terms of shot stopping can change games and change the, the reality of the ball hitting the back of the net. So Turner, for me... Joe. Yeah, go ahead. I have a question, um, a genuine question, because I realize like a lot of what Graham was saying about Tyler Adams. If you change the names and the kind of position centric right, stuff, the same thing is Matt Turner. It, yeah, same things apply. Here is my question: uh, Michele was was tweeting last week that like basically stating as fact that Zach Steffen is Greg Berhalter's starter. Now, I would say that's that's maybe an opinion, but there is still that prevailing idea that Steffen has been the number one. When he's been healthy, it seems like he has been Berhalter's number one. Maybe Turner has supplanted him. I think we would all agree that Turner should have supplanted Zach Steffen by now. But if if we do see Zach Steffen starting for the United States, is that an immediate, like, okay, he doesn't know what he's doing? Do you have, like, are you able to sort of get over that, genuinely asking you, or do you feel like that is a major flaw? Oh, I think it's a huge flaw. Like, I think okay. that would be the single biggest lineup mistake that Greg Berhalter could make for a guitar, and, it, and it's honestly not close. And that, that's why Turner's at the top of this list for me. I think he is he's that much better than the rest of the goalkeepers in the U.S. poll, certainly than Zach Steffen, who probably wouldn't even be in my top three goalkeepers to, to go to guitar in the first place if we were to set personal relationships aside. So Turner's my, my first one. Eunice Moose is my second one because we just saw what happens to the U.S. without Eunice Moose. The U.S. <laughs> had Tyler Adams in September. They didn't have Eunice Moose and they were terrible. The U.S. was terrible. And Moose is, is a kind of guy who makes bad teams look just a little bit better. And I don't even think the U.S. is necessarily a bad team, but he's also the kind of player that makes good teams look kind of really good sometimes. And that we saw that back in June. So Moose is my number two. I think he is the most important midfielder for the U.S., not Tyler Adams. And then Walker Zimmerman is my third player because if you don't have Zimmerman at this point, like what what's going on in the back line? I don't know the answer to that question, nor do I really want Vibes. to find out the answer to that question. Uh, Graham, was there some overlap for you with those? Um, actually, no. So my, yep. my second pick was, um, and this is where maybe I'm overthinking this. Maybe the answer actually is Yunus Musa. But looking back to that um, to that window that we just had. My other yep. contender is Anthony Robinson. That's so right. I, I, I know there was a lot of focus on the midfield in the games against Japan and, and Saudi Arabia and their failure to progress the ball up the pitch. And that's obviously where Musa comes in. But I, I thought, in in retrospect, looking back at those games, I think the absence of Robinson is, is also a factor. If you have him as an outlet down the left, you have a way to get forward. And even if he isn't the one progressing the ball, you draw an opponent to, to create some space for the midfielders in the middle, which is where the US had such trouble particularly in that in that Japan game so I've got I've got Anthony Robinson basically the conclusion that I'm I'm coming to here is like all the players who yep. we know are going to start essentially yep that's about where I am I had Adams I had Anthony Robinson I had Walker Zimmerman I will hold my hands up and say kind of forgot about the importance of Yunus Musa because he wasn't there recently Joe I think that's a very very good shout so yeah all we need to do is keep Matt Turner Tyler Adams Yunus Musa Walker Zimmerman and uh, Jedi Robinson all healthy and then we should be okay? Question mark. Joe, how's that carbonite machine? <laughs> uh, can we can we get that one cranked? Up, it's please? good. We are we are increasing production as we speak, Taylor. Because I felt Thanks, like Joe. that was going to be the outcome of this particular question. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Well, uh, now that we're over an hour, we can have ludicrous conversations like how's the carbonite machine, which also <laughs> means it's probably time to bring this one to a close. Uh, but I, I appreciate you both for giving some wonderful answers, some thought-provoking answers as well. Joe Lowry, great work today, my friend. Right back at you, Taylor. Uh, Graham Ruthven, great work by you, my friend. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. And I'm very sorry that Joe was so harsh about your baking ability. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> Listeners, thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you again this week. 